You don't know that uh, I have a very precious family, and uh, I have a little boy who's almost three years old, and I wanted to bring a wallet photo for you this morning so you could see who he was. This is him right here, my son Matt. And uh, I also had a, uh, this last Wednesday, a, uh, a week ago today, his birthday is uh, in exactly eight minutes for a week old, I had a little boy. So if you'd like to see any, I just brought a few pictures if you'd like to see my newborn, uh, Mark Daniel. But uh, I wanted to talk to you today a little bit about my family for a second, and that's why I showed you those pictures. I want to talk to you about my wife for a moment. Uh, my wife is a wonderfully godly woman. She's incredible. And I, I want to say something to you, and I, I know it may sound cliche, but I don't want to sound cliche to you. Uh, I love her more now, five years since we've been married than I did the first day that I met her and then the first day that I married her. And I I have to be honest with you, I didn't think it was possible to love a person more than I did when I married her because I was so fully committed and in love with her. And it was an amazing thing to see as our love has grown and even with the entrance of children into our family, it's something that I haven't experienced before and most of you haven't either. Uh, just to see how much my love and appreciation for her as a woman of God has grown and how the basis of our commitment is based in Christ and in the Word and how that blossoms into every area of our lives and it makes life rich. But I want you to know I didn't always feel that way. When I was single, 24 years old, a pastor of Grace Community Church, single, uh, in the junior high department, Uh, I had made a covenant, and my covenant was that I would not date any of my junior high staff. I had about 35 staff people. Uh, Many of them were um, girls, and some of them were very attractive girls. And I felt that if I was really going to minister unhindered, that I needed to have a kind of a commitment that wouldn't mess up my ministry relationship. Now, this is not something, you know, a principle that you have to obey or something. This is just me, Mueller 5-5, First Fleshalonians. I, I decided that, that I would not date any of my staff so as to confuse the ministry and all of a sudden have their focus be me instead of Jesus Christ and the junior hires. Now, praise God that... I didn't commit that same commitment in my own heart and in my own mind to date my secretary. Because two months after I made that commitment not to date any of my staff, this attractive young woman came and became my secretary. Her name was Jean Sharp, and she really was sharp. And uh, we developed a wonderful friendship. That's all we did. Kind of a working relationship, and we spent a little bit of time outside. Not in any formal dating, nothing. We just happened to be in a group of people, and we'd talk, and that kind of thing. And we developed a very strong friendship, a brother-sister relationship in the Lord. Then unbeknownst to me, and unwanted by me, because I was going through seminary and wanted to go through seminary single, because I heard uh, Mark Mueller told me that uh, single men can go through seminary a lot better than married men. They can get a lot more done and stay up late and do papers and not feel guilty. And uh, so here I was, uh, all of a sudden, finding myself growing in love with this girl who was my secretary, which could be a very dangerous thing as you're, um, if you let your mind run a little bit. And so what I would do is I would come to work and I would just shut the door. 
and I wouldn't think about her. And I'd be studying and I'd be going, the Bible says she sure is good looking. No, 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 that's not right. Um, and I'd start to really get frustrated because I'd start hitting my desk literally up against uh, my head, up against my desk because I didn't want to think about her. I just wanted to think about what God had for me to do. And I found that it became impossible to do what I was supposed to do without maybe pursuing more than just a friendship. And we had such a good friendship. It was no commitment, no anything, no expressed, I like you, you like me. It was just a wonderful, Christian, simple, pleasing to God friendship. And uh, through uh, 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 some situations and some circumstances, we um, began to get into a courting relationship and then we became engaged. Engagement was great. Uh, the only problem with engagement is that we used to travel together as a junior high group and, you know, junior high ministries, so strong and biblical. We'd go to Knott's Berry Farm and Disneyland and all those real spiritual places and we'd take all these junior hires and run all over the place. We had a wonderful time, you know, trying to be Christ-like in front of them. And uh, it was good. And the, the thing that was bad about it was that my wife is a, is a friendly person. She's not a flirt, the, the farthest thing from that. And she's very careful when she's around guys and always has been. Um, but she would be nice to guys to represent Christ to them. She wouldn't say anything, you know, flirtatious or anything to them. She'd just be interested in people. And these guys, the, we'd go out to Knott's Farm on Saturday, and they'd show up at church on Sunday, all the way from Orange County, to come out and see my wife, uh, my wife-to-be. Of course, they didn't know that she was my wife-to-be. So what Jean did, all of a sudden, when she, they showed up on Sunday, she goes, hmm, maybe they got the wrong idea. So she'd go, here, let me introduce you to my fiancé, Chris. Well, of course, guys, I don't know if you feel this way. My natural tendency is to go, you know, and just let him know, you got the wrong idea. That's my honey you're talking to then, uh, you know. And I'd, I'd share the gospel with them, and I'd try and be real loving and, and all that kind of thing. But I knew what they were there for, and they knew what they were there for. And I got real protective. In fact, sometimes overly protective, and I had to really be watched. Uh, because if anyone was ever critical of my bride or, or ever very scrutinizing her, I, I found myself being overprotective. Now, would you agree that we should be overprotective of our wives? Guys, can you nod your heads on that? Is that anybody with me on that? You really should be protective of your wives. Isn't that what God has called us to? The reason I all share that with you, and I'm not trying to tell you my personal life story, is that I just want to say one thing. Isn't it too bad that it's not the same with the bride of Christ? Isn't it too bad that as protective as some of us are and would be of our own wives, that we are not protective of the bride of Christ? The precious church of God. I really believe that it breaks the Lord's heart when we're critical, distant, judgmental, or aloof from God's chosen bride, His church. And very briefly this morning, I'd like to examine our relationship to the local assembly. I don't want to talk to you as a pastor, okay? I want to talk to you as one guy who loves God to other people who love God and just help you to realize maybe what the Bible has to say for us to be and do as a member of the body of Christ. Not membership, not church membership, but as a member and a part of the body of Christ. And even though it may hurt, please allow me to do some biblical thinking with you this morning very briefly as we examine what our role is to be with the local assembly. You know, it's tough to talk about the church because it's such a funny place. I mean, sometimes it's tough not to be critical because the church is loaded with idiosyncrasies and other things that really make it difficult not to be critical. Now, think about it for a second. The church is full of people that will say just and Lord 300 times every time they pray. Think about it. 
Lord, I just thank you for just being here. Just Lord, thank you. You know, I mean, it's just kind of different. The, the church is filled with mothers who refuse to take their children to the cry room, even though their kids can outsound a 747. The church is full of all kinds of people whose digital alarms go off during silent prayer and time of meditation. Why don't you try that? Everybody have a, a noisemaker watch? Just try that. On the count of three, I want you to all make it make noise, okay? And just be real quiet and listen. On the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. The church is usually filled with pastors who spray over the first three rows. You ever been there? We used to tell our college people, sit in the first three rows, and they got tired of getting rained on. So, Usually we have song leaders who appear to emulate the takeoff of a Canadian goose. And usually the church is full of many not-so-funny and hurtful things. Uh, just recently, about three weeks ago, we talked about the church and our college ministry at Grace, and, and a guy came up to me afterwards, and he told me this horror story of how the church had burned him and his friends. And it was, it was really a shame. It was scary. And it hurt me to listen to see what God's church had did to him and his family and how they had really burned him. But in spite of that, I'd like to start by making some statements that probably will upset you this morning. Not because I want to upset you, but because it may indicate how far we have moved from what God designed for us to be involved in the local assembly. Let me give you six statements. Don't write them down. Just listen to them and see how you fit into this. Statement number one. If your closest, most biblical friends are not found in the local church, then you are probably not experiencing the kind of fellowship that God intended for you. Now that may upset some of you, but allow that to sink in a little bit. And allow you to interact with the scripture concerning that statement. Statement number two. If you are not consistently sacrificing for and with a local assembly, then you are not experiencing the kind of growth and maturity that God intended for you. Statement number three. If you are not constantly involved in and accountable to a local church, then you are not prepared for spiritual warfare and are an easy prey to the enemy. Statement number four. If you are not seeking to be involved in the total of the church, not just the youth or the college or any other age group, but weekly experiencing some contact with older saints and especially godly families, then you may not grow to have a correct view of who God is. Statement number five. If you do not function outside, or excuse me, if you do function outside the local church in a ministry, but a local church did not send you to that ministry and you have little or no contact with the local church, then you're not aligning yourself under the perfect plan of God and His design and maybe out of His will. Statement number six. If you do not serve or minister your spiritual gift within the local church, then you have not only become a dead weight to the church, but also could be hindering the growth and maturity of the local assembly and stopping it from being more like Jesus Christ. Those are heavy statements. But I believe if we take the scripture as it is and allow it to begin to apply to our lives and really take an honest look at one of the simplest doctrine in the New Testament, I think that you'll find that there is some great truth to each one of those statements. Now, can I prove them biblically? Well, what with our remaining time, let me try and convince you that you need to fall in love with God's perfect plan for this age, which is the local church. If there is one thing that I could communicate to you this morning is not to be more involved, not to kill yourself, but more than anything else that in your heart and in your attitude toward the plan of God and the work of God in this plan and His kingdom program, that you would grow in love with His perfect and righteous plan, the local assembly. If it could just plant a seed this morning and you could make steps toward that process, you would be more of what Jesus Christ wants you to be.
Let me share with you four simple truths that will answer some statements, not all, but answer some of the statements and also let you know some of what God expects of you as a member of his body. Whether you're a liver, a hand, a kidney, or the toe jam of the body of Christ, what is your part in the body of Christ? And what does God expect of you to function in that particular area? And if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, would you please? We'll look at three simple passages. And I hope I don't insult your intelligence this morning by going over things that you may know, but let's look at them from a different light. Let's look at them in, in relationship to your involvement in the local assembly. In Ephesians chapter 4, as a member of the body of Christ, your relationship to the local church is to be principle number one, dependent. Dependent. You are to, to be dependent upon the local church. Not independent, but dependent. Take a look at Ephesians 4. Let's start at verse 11 and then read through verse 16 together. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Why do we equip? For the work of service. To build up the body of Christ. Why? Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer children, tossed to and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Now, take note of verse 16 very carefully. From whom the whole body, the church, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, that's you, according to the proper working of each individual part, that's you, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, let's not get lost in the simplicity of that. According to the scripture, we desperately need each other in order to even grow the way that we're supposed to. In other words, when we function as our individual part in the body of Christ, then what that does is it causes everyone to grow equally together. When we stop growing and doing what Jesus Christ wants us to do within the body, then we hinder the growth of the whole body. According to Ephesians chapter 6, spiritual warfare is fought as a corporate body. Understand that all the commands in Ephesians chapter 6 are in the plural. He's not speaking to individual saints. He's speaking to a corporate body. We as a corporate body fight the spiritual warfare. We put on the helmet of salvation. We bear the shield of faith. We do that together. Which means that if you're not really rightly involved in the local assembly, then you could get slaughtered and some of you already know that that's true. Most of the major counseling that I do with collegians as well as with families are with people who are not rightly involved with the local assembly. And what they do is they open themselves up to all kinds of attacks and arrows from the enemy. It's true. Ask any counselor and you'll know it's true. We're to be like mountain climbers. How many have done any mountain climbing in here at all? Great. You guys repelling the whole shot? When you mountain climb, if you're going to do some serious rock climbing, you're going to be roped together if you're going to go as a team. The interesting thing is that if I lose my footing or if another man loses his footing, there's usually two or three others of us who can then hold on to that individual until that individual regains his footing. That is exactly what the local church is to be. 
We're to be the kind of people that if you fall down, somebody is right there to pick you back up and dust you off and allow you to get your footing. If you struggle, someone's there to help. My question to you, are you involved enough in a local assembly that if you did fall down, someone would be there to rope you back up? Because that's what we are to be, dependent on one another. We need to be a part of the whole body, not just an individual part of the body or a group in that body, but a a part of the whole body in order to stay the way we're supposed to stay, which is hot. Right? Hot and cold, lukewarm Christians, we're supposed to stay hot. The only way that you can stay hot is to be rightly involved with the local assembly, to have that kind of commitment. Once one of Spurgeon's parishioners was not coming to his assembly, And Spurgeon, the great preacher, heard about it and unique to him and yet not so unique. He would go and pay visits on certain people and he went to visit this man who stopped showing up to his church. The man was so shocked when he opened the door and saw the great Spurgeon standing there that he couldn't even say anything. He just kind of ushered him in. It was toward the evening and there was a hot coal fire in the fireplace and Spurgeon went right over to the fire and sat right on the hearth, right next to the fire and the man sat opposite him in a chair, petrified. He looked at Spurgeon and Spurgeon looked back at him and they just stared at each other for about 30 seconds. And then, without saying a word, Spurgeon grabbed some tongs that were sitting next to the fireplace, reached into the fire and grabbed one of the hot coals that were all burning and glowing red. And he lifted it out of the fire and he placed it by itself on the hearth. And he just stood there and looked at it. And then he looked at the man and he looked at the coal and he continued to do that. As they both watched that coal, it began to lose its glow. And then the ash formed around it and then finally it grew totally cold. And the parishioner looked at Spurgeon and he says, I understand, Pastor, I'll be there next week. The whole point was you separate yourself from the local assembly, you're going to grow cold. That we need each other to keep each other hot and accountable. And that's part of what the local assembly is all about. Well, point number two. Not only are we to be dependent, but we are also to be gifted. If you turn in your Bibles, look over at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Another way of saying gifted is that every member of the local church is to be powerful or supernatural. Now, I know that most of you walked in here today and you didn't think of yourself as being powerful or supernatural. But what I would hope and pray is that you realize that you are powerful and that you are supernatural. If you are truly regenerate, do you not have the Holy Spirit of God who is living within you? The pastoral epistles tell us that that spirit is not timid, but it is bold and powerful. And Christian, when was the last time that your life was powerful? When was the last time that your life was filled with something that was so obviously supernatural that you could only remember? Loaded all their rifles and put them all around the turrets of the fort. And then when the attack came, they ran along the edges all the way around, constantly firing on the Arabs using their dead comrades' weapons and making it look like it was their dead comrades. The Arabs who were so overwhelmed because every time they shot one of those guys, they wouldn't fall down. Finally gave up the fight and they won. But that is so much like the church today. Four guys, a small minority, running around trying to do the work of a whole bunch of dead comrades. What's interesting to me is that statistically we know that 20% of the typical local church does 80% of the work. 
20% of the typical local church does 80% of the giving. 20% of the typical local church does 80% of the sacrifice. I believe there's two reasons for this. Number one, it's partly because most people who call themselves Christians are not really Christians. You know, it's interesting to me that in the Bible, every time a group of gathered believers is analyzed, it never gives the Christians of that particular group a majority. Especially, it's interesting to me that Matthew 13 gives us two analyses of what our age is going to be like, this church age, and it never gives the Christian the majority. I mean, think about it for a second. In Revelation 3, there's hot, cold, and lukewarm. What percentage of that is saved? If you really understand Revelation chapter 3, you'll understand that only one-third of that is Christian. The hot. If you look at Matthew 13, in the wheat and the tares, what's that? One-half is Christian. When you look at Matthew 13 in the parable of the soils, it looks like one-fourth is Christian. It's interesting to me, and I'm not trying to make too much of a point of this because I think that'd be a little eisegesis, but it's interesting to me that the Christians are never in the majority when they talk about a group of people. What that means is that many of the people who show up in our local assemblies are not saved. It may even mean that many of us in this room are not saved. We don't have a rightful relationship with Jesus Christ that manifests fruit as a result of being saved by faith. But another big reason that we do not really have the kind of church that everyone is functioning the way they're supposed to do is we just don't know our spiritual gifts. And that's why I wanted you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at that, would you? 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. It says, as each one, that's you, that's me, has received a gift, a special gift, employ it in serving one another. That's what spiritual gifts are for. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Understand there that he says that each one of us has been supernaturally gifted. Not the gift of music. Not the gift of making wood projects. Not the gift of, you know, being nice to people. But the spiritual gifts that are found in Ephesians 4 and Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, the gifts that are found that the Spirit uses that are to be used in ministry to one another in the body of Christ. You have a supernatural gift that will, when it is manifested, could only be God through you. Incredible. Take a look at 2 Timothy really quick. 2 Timothy Chapter 1. And take a look at a verse that really excites me. Just the first part of it. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And for this reason, Timothy, Timothy's getting kind of his final charge by Paul. For this reason, Timothy, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. He says, stir it up, Timothy. Stir up that spiritual gift that's in you. Interesting, in the Koine Greek, to stir up means to stir up a fire. Ever seen a coal fire or a wood fire that's grown cold and when you stir it up, it becomes so hot you almost have to back away? That's the kind of heat he's talking about. What's so great about that word also is that in the classical Greek, it is used of the release of wild horses. You can picture that in your mind for a second. You've captured a wild, untamed horse. 
that fights against your rope. And then you release that horse and all that power and energy is released. He says that's what a spiritual gift is. It's power and it's energy released through the Spirit of God through you. And that's what members of the body of Christ are to do. We're to manifest our giftedness within the local assembly. To have it be what it's supposed to be. Number three. The, children, the Christian who realizes that the church is God's perfect design for this age will be a purposeful member of the body of Christ. A purposeful member. Not just powerful, but purposeful. The true church member will have a consuming passion. And to understand that passion, go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Go back to the book of 1 Peter and look at chapter 2. And I really appreciate those of you who turn with me. I, it's really a joy. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it's a wonderful verse that was really brought to my attention by your own Russ Moore. And it says in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Before I go on, understand that Peter is speaking to the church, but he's using words that were typical of the nation of Israel. He's saying to you, church, you're to do what Israel was supposed to do. And what were they supposed to do? That they were to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of His darkness into His marvelous light. Our job on this planet as a local church, as a local assembly, is to do just what Jesus did, right? Right? And Jesus said, as the Father has sent me... I send you. We're to do what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? He showed us who the Father was. He showed us who God was. So that in everything He did, we saw who God the Father was. So that we could be like Him. You know what God wants to do? God wants us simply to be consumed with building the saints and saving the ain'ts. Building the saints and saving the aids. That's why we're here. That's what our purpose is. So that they can be and we can be more like Jesus Christ. He wants us not just to tell people about Jesus Christ, but to assist them in becoming like Jesus Christ. That's why the great omission, I mean the great commission, says that we are to make decisions. Is that what it says? No, it says that we are to make what? Disciples. Why make disciples and not a decision? The reason for that is because a disciple will be more like Jesus Christ than this somebody who just made a decision. Just a mere commitment. Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ and then they go their way. A disciple is somebody who becomes like Jesus Christ and that's what we're to be consumed with. Becoming like Jesus Christ ourselves and assisting other people to become like Jesus Christ. And if you are a member of a local church, a member of an assembly, if you're a part of the body of Christ, your consuming passion should be simply this. And please don't let me insult your intelligence. To be used of God to make as many people like Jesus Christ in the shortest time possible. That's it. You want to summarize your whole purpose on this planet? To be used of God to make as many people like Jesus Christ in the shortest time possible. Anything short of that. And you are not doing what God has called you to do and what the church is here to do on this planet. It's kind of like uh, football. I really like football. In fact, it's somewhat of an idol to me and I have to be very careful. 
But uh, a friend of mine just gave my son a very thoughtful gift in a football, and my son and I are practicing right now. He can't catch it yet, but he can sure get drilled by it. I really enjoy throwing the perfect pass, don't you, guys? Maybe some of you girls. I really enjoy the textbook tackle, where it's just the way it's supposed to be. I get really excited about ringing a player's bell. And it's really fun to get that fingertip catch as you just step into the end zone. That's exciting. But sometimes we get so caught up in the individual skills of the game of football that we forget that the goal of the game is not to pass. The goal of the game is not to catch. The goal of the game is not to tackle. And the goal of the game is not just to hit somebody else. The goal of the game of football is to what? Score touchdowns. That's the goal of the game. Isn't it interesting that in this Christian life we get caught up in the same thing? Some of us, we get really excited about that perfect Bible study that I just taught. We get really excited about the outstanding confrontation. We get excited about that clutch answered prayer. We get really motivated by that quiet time that we just happen to have once a week. We get excited about the Christian skills that we have, but we lose sight of why God has left us here, and that's to make disciples. Those are the touchdowns of the Christian life. That's why we're here. And that's our singular purpose that God expects us to be glued to. Number four, and very quickly, the true member of the body of Christ is to lead. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 talk about spiritual men leading the congregation. 1 Peter 5 talks about being shepherded and the young men are to be subject to those older shepherds. Titus 2 talks about the older women in the church training the younger women. Hebrews 13 tells us that we are to obey our leaders and submit to them in such a way that we bring joy to them because of our Christ-like submission and obedience. Let me ask you something. My question to you today is what older man or older woman within the local church do you follow? What elder or shepherd do you submit to and obey? What man or woman, or better yet, what godly family do you imitate within the body of Christ? Because I guarantee you, men and women, just because you go to a Christian college does not mean that you're to have, not have contact with godly families and people who are to model the faith for you. Men and women, this is not to be a burden to you. The church isn't thrown on to you by Christ so that it wipes out your wonderful schedule and ruins your studying and and keeps you from being involved in the things that you want to be involved in. God's plan for the church is put together because it's a perfect plan. It's a plan that He has designed for this age and He cannot make mistakes. You know, I want you to know that I've had some of my worst experiences in my Christian life within the church. And I've had some of my best experiences in my Christian life in the parachurch. You know, one time uh, when I just began to really understand what the Word of God has to say, I was in a small church. It was my church, my first church. And they were going to ordain a woman elder. And I stood up in a rightful place at the right time. And I asked the pastor, I said, couldn't we look again at the qualifications for an elder in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1? And his response was so venomous, so hostile, and so angry that I could no longer fellowship at that church and it took me about a year to replace myself and all my responsibilities and then I had to leave because I didn't have the support of that pastor nor did that pastor want to be obedient to the scripture 
I had a discipler who discipled me at a church be disqualified as an elder because of immorality. I had a man who I was training to be a youth pastor disqualify himself because of great immorality. I stood at a room at Grace Community Church where 80 people screamed at me with a deacon and an elder present. They screamed at me for an hour and asked me questions and every time I tried to respond I couldn't give one complete sentence without them cutting me off over an issue that I didn't initiate and that I wasn't really responsible for. But these people were mad and angry. I left that room and I wept. I couldn't believe it, that that was a part of the body of Christ. And in the parachurch, I was able to have a relationship with a Christian camp where I got to run that camp. In another parachurch organization, I was to be an area director over an area and take on great responsibility, and it was wonderful. And I want you to know something. Even though I've had so many negative experiences in the church and so many positive experiences in the parachurch, that I am more in love with the church now than ever before. Because I believe more and more that God knows what He's doing and that His Word is perfect and it's right. You know, God doesn't make mistakes. The church is His perfect plan. Let me describe one last thing to you and then we're done. It's fourth down, men and women. One second left on the clock, you're on the 10-yard line, and it's the last play of the game, and to win, you have to score a touchdown. So the coach, wisely, sends in his very best foolproof play, and you run that play. For us as members of the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, I want you to know it's the last days. And any second, the end of the age is going to come. And we are in need of the very best play that there is to win the game. And so what does our infallible, perfect, and all-wise coach do? He sends in his last and his very best play. And that play, men and women, is the church. Let's pray together.